Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. You're digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD, Will the Thrill, and TJ2. Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, along with me for the ride, as always, is Will the Thrill. Greetings and salutations. Oh, that was a good one. Where you? What are you drinking? Uh, today's choice comes to us from the Figaro Mountain Brewing Company, and that is, of course, the Mosaic Pale Ale. And why is the Figaro Mountain Company something that you keep drinking during this series? Well, it just so happens that my wonderful wife procured me several uh, items from that brewery, and also I thoroughly enjoyed visiting it. It was one of the reasons I got into the Untapped app was because of their beer, and we picked up several items. We went to the Neverland Ranch. Yes, I'm still seeking yep. entry into that, but... Um... <laughs> do, do what you can, <laughs> within like legal that. bounds, of course. <laughs> and And also joining us this week, we're glad to have him back. Mr. TJ2, the deuce. Are you scratching something? <sighs> My itch for a beer. <laughs> do you not and have a you beer? Do what? Do you not have a beer or do you have a beer? No, I just cracked it. Did you not hear it? No, not at all. We uh, got to get you a microphone. Uh, okay, we're going to need a little better out of you next time. Mama's Little Yellow Pills from the Oscar Blues Brewery. That is a delightful brewery. I've been mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, I think they have one in Brevard, North Carolina. Okay. Yeah. I think the HQ is uh, Lions, Colorado, near Denver. Ah, okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. They have a delightful outpost in North Carolina. And I'd like to thank them for uh, providing me with alcohol. <laughs> Again, we are not sponsored <laughs> by beer. We no sponsor. No sponsor. We're not. Uh, no, we're not sponsored by it, but we wholeheartedly endorse it and, and uh, enjoy it. And you know, this week uh, we don't have anything to announce, and we also have TJ back. So two. <laughs> Yeah, um, I tried to explain to people, you know, last week, T, that you you are the editor of the newspaper. And so if something comes up and we have to record, of course, the news takes precedent over this. So, uh, you know, I can tell people miss you when you're gone. Oh, yeah. Who wouldn't? <laughs> I mean, for all the for all the wonderful contributions I offer up, like uh, poop jokes and drinking. And um, well, that's actually about all I do. Uh, think about it. Um, it keeps us honest. Yeah. 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 So I guess we can jump right into the fact that we are sponsored this week by a fantastic company. And so I'm going to hand that over to Mr. Thrill, and he will tell you all about it. Yes, thank you. And I'm here today to tell you about our sponsor, BetterHelp, who was gracious enough to provide sponsorship for this podcast. And I can tell you it's a product I actually use. No matter where we are in life, sometimes we need a little bit of help. We all spend a lot of time on work, exercise, trying to make ourselves the best version of us that we can be. But I ask you this simple question. When was the last time you focused on your mental health? Well, if you're anything like me, it was way too long. Like a lot of people, I did the hard work. I exercised. For some reason, it just wasn't adding up. It was tough for me to talk to anybody. And as a result, I felt completely isolated. I felt alone. And I wasn't sure there was anybody I can go to. And that's where BetterHelp came in. BetterHelp allows you to get the specific help you need for whatever it is that's eating away at you. They ask you targeted questions so you can get set up with the right therapist within 48 hours. Just 48 hours, you can talk to a licensed professional about 
whatever it is that's going on with you. Sometimes it's something big. Sometimes it's something small. It doesn't matter. And I can tell you with my counselor, I'm able to talk about anything from the comfort of my own home. That's one of the best things about BetterHelp. Not only can you tackle big topics, small topics, but you can do it all without having to go somewhere, try to find parking, eh, deal with all that nonsense, which especially in LA is really hard. Plus, it's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist after just 48 hours. Simply answer the questions, and BetterHelp will match you up with a professional to suit your needs. I can tell you that BetterHelp was a game changer for me. It's been a game changer for millions of other people, and it can be a game changer for you too. And I am proud to say we have a special offer for Rock and Roll Heaven listeners that will give you 10% off your first month of professional therapy at BetterHelp. The code is betterhelp.com slash rockheaven. That's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash rockheaven and get 10% off your first month with a therapist. Thank you, BetterHelp, for sponsoring this podcast, helping me out, and helping everybody else out that you have to this point. BetterHelp, better life. And I will say, uh, you know, we ha- we do have a move coming up pretty soon. And the great thing about BetterHelp is that, you know, we will have to, unfortunately, you know, say goodbye to the therapist that you've been working with, but BetterHelp will actually facilitate matching us with a therapist or matching you with a therapist in our new state. So they make it incredibly easy to be matched with someone that uh, can suit your needs. So mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I don't actually use BetterHelp. Will is the one that actually uses BetterHelp, but I can see the difference that BetterHelp has been making in Will's life. And so guys, I please give it a, a one month, give it one month, you can take 10% off and using that code rockheaven at betterhelp.com. And, you know, this is a great outlet for people. I know so many people that use BetterHelp and that love it. So, you know, if, if, you know, working on your mental health is something that you really want to try, which is something that we absolutely advocate on the show, please give it a whirl. Just make sure to go to betterhelp.com backslash rockheaven to get 10% off at checkout. Absolutely. All right. So. With that, shall we jump into literally one day of Michael Jackson's life? <laughs> That's about the pace that we've been on so far, so why not? I think Michael Jackson goes to an Arby's in this episode, if I'm not mistaken. No, he right. doesn't. He doesn't eat meat. We've talked about this. He is on a right. micro. I know what Michael Curly Jackson fries. eats. He eats, <laughs> that- he eats nuts and spices. That's all he eats. He eats <laughs> seeds. Arby's, we've got the macrobiotics. Guys, if you can't tell, I am. I, I, I know so much about Michael Jackson. <laughs> hey, uh, a quick, I need a quick, quick throwback to the last episode since I wasn't on it. Um, hey, you mentioned uh, Janet eloping during the yes. victory tour. Yes. Yeah. I, I'm almost certain that that was with DeBarge. I'm the whole band. That was who. Well, El DeBarge, whatever the guy's name was. I thought it was Devo. <laughs> that's a joke. Okay, that's a joke. If I clearly you, did not think it was Devo. I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure that no one else other than me watched the 2016 version of Ghostbusters that were all women. But that comes from that that movie. I know and my target we audience. Quote, we still quote it to this day. And then they annulled, you know, so uh, when a problem came along, they decided to whip it. What? Whip it good. <laughs> Didn't you Devo. make a Devo reference? Am I, <laughs> is this beer like way stronger than I imagined? Or <laughs> am I not paying attention? Are you not? Something's going on. I don't know what's happening. Um, I actually think you are correct that it was DeBarge, that they were they were literally and then, um, September 7th, 1984 to November 18th, 1985. So right. not not exactly what I would consider the long haul. Like I know right. a man and who can help other, you. A man named Bill DeBarge. Was, exactly. The other thing was, uh, I recall during the victory tour, they actually put out like commemorative Pepsi cans and my cousin had one and I was so envious. They actually did, but you can be the owner of one for, for like- For the low, low price of? Uh, let, me, let me check my, let me check my trusty source of eBay. 
It may not be a low, low price if you think about it. Michael Jackson. Uh, probably not. Let's see. Um, apparently you can get one for $400,000, but something tells me that that's probably not <laughs> Kevin, did you save your can? Because <laughs> we, we need to I'll, go to I'll eBay right up. now. That's just uh, taking up space in the attic. There's, I, let me take that off your hands, buddy. I'll dispose of it. Actually, there's a vintage Jackson 5 World Tour 1984 Pepsi can by Michael Jackson, which is 19.99 and basically five bucks shipping. So you don't have to kill then, Kevin yet. Okay, good. <laughs> and then the other thing is, uh, last one, I believe it was on the Victory Tour stop in Houston. They were actually joined on stage by Eddie Van Halen. They may have been. That was not in my book. There's actually a video of it on YouTube. Just probably search Eddie Van Halen Victory Tour or something. And there's a, a recording, and you and it. I I think they took it straight off the mixer or the board before, and it, so it's 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 overmodulated and it doesn't sound very good. But you can see Eddie Van Halen on stage with uh, the Jacksons uh, wow. in that, and I believe that is from uh, their stop in Houston. And he plays. He obviously comes out when they do beat it, which I guess was toward the end of the show you said in the last episode yeah it i think what they did was they kind of did a chronological ordering of their songs and then they let them have you know they let jermaine have his moments and jackie and marlon so they they each got their their own songs and then michael's was toward the end so yeah 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 so that would have been and, and that would have been a great way to end the show i mean because at the time this is 1984 Eddie Van Halen was, I mean, alongside Michael, one of the biggest rock stars on the planet. So, of course, that would make sense. Like, you bring him out at the very end to close it, you know, for, for the big moment. So, but anyway, you can find that on YouTube if anybody wants to watch that. Actually, uh, if you find it, uh, post it on our Facebook. I can do that. Excellent. So, since we are talking about the Victory Tour, that was actually what we covered the last time. Um, so, if you guys know, that was pretty much a disaster. And that drove a huge riff into the family dynamic. So by January of 1985, that tour was history. So another thing that was kind of glazed over that I thought would be super interesting to talk about for just a second was that Chuck Sullivan, who was involved with the Victory Tour, he was brought on as like the babysitter for Don King, if I'm remembering correctly. I've got so much Michael Jackson trivia shoved into my head that all these names are just like, it's just like pickles. Um, well, why don't you try shoving it somewhere else? <laughs> So Chuck actually gave Michael $18 million in cash to develop a clothing line. Michael barely got a few fashions into the stores, which did not sell. And then Chuck went bankrupt and Mike, uh, Michael incidentally got to keep the $18 million. That was pretty much all of the write-up that I could find. But I, <laughs> Michael kept the $18 million, Chuck went bankrupt. But, um, and that's the end of that story? And that's the end of that story. Uh, but since we've had like a ton of doom and gloom in the past couple of episodes, I kind of wanted to touch on something that might be a little bit more fun. I'm going to talk about We Are the World. We Are the World is a charity single originally recorded by the supergroup USA for Africa in 1985. It was written by Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie and produced by Quentin C. Jones and Michael for the album We Are the World. They had sales in excess of 20 million copies. It is the eighth best-selling physical single of all time. So soon after the UK-based Band-Aid released Do They Know It's Christmas in December 1984, musician and actor activist Hera Belafonte began to think about how an American benefit single for African famine relief could be put together. So he contacted a gentleman named Ken Cragen. And I'm going to sidestep for 10 seconds here. Um, I will tell more of a developed story at the end of this, but... Uh, Every person that I spoke to to try to get somebody to talk about this event would suggest that I speak to Ken Cragen. Upon telling me that, they would immediately message me and go, oh my God, he passed away. So Ken Cragen, who was instrumental in doing this event, has passed on and a lot of people didn't know about it. So um, I actually had a friend who is named Doug and Doug actually told me about how wonderful Ken was. Everything that everybody's ever said about this guy has been nothing but glowing about how he was an awesome guy. So uh, that is somebody who I didn't realize that we needed to say rest in power to, but Ken, you did a good thing. And so, you know, we're sorry that we've lost you. Um, and Ken was at the time an entertainment manager with a history of fundraising. And they asked him if he could enlist his clients, Kenny Rogers and Lionel Richie in the endeavor. 
Kenny and Lionel in turn obtained the cooperation of Stevie Wonder, who could add more name value to the project because let's let's face it, Kenny Rogers and Lionel Richie are hacks, right? And Stevie Wonder, that's really how you're going to add the star power to this, right? Yeah, I think those two have a, a few songs between them now. I mean, maybe one day they'll maybe, they'll make something maybe, of themselves. Okay. <laughs> then the game of telephone then progressed, eventually hitting Michael, and he asked if he would perform on the recording. Now, he only wanted to sing the song if he could help write it. And so he and Lionel Richie actually got together and wrote the song. In his autobiography, Moonwalk, Michael describes it like this. In 1985, we cut We Are the World, an all-star all-night recording session that was held after the ceremony for the American Music Awards. I wrote the song with Lionel and after seeing the appalling news footage of starving people in Ethiopia and the Sudan. At the time, I was used to asking my sister to follow me into a room with interesting acoustics, like a closet or a bathroom, and then I would just sing her a note or a rhythm of a note. There wouldn't be a lyric for anything I would just hang it at the bottom of my throat and say, what do you see, Janet? What do you see when you hear that sound? And at this time, she said, dying children in Africa. You're right. That's what I was dictating from my soul. So after the victory tour, Michael became involved in the We Are the World song, which uh, if you guys don't know, it was actually an effort to feed the hungry for Ethiopia. Michael had always been empathetic to the hungry and the homeless and the sick. If you guys remember when he was, um, when he had the Pepsi accident and he ended up in the burn unit, he had actually been to that burn unit beforehand and spoken to a guy who 95% of his body was covered in third degree burns. So he was doing humanitarian work before this, but he was very empathetic to especially children. In the, fra- in the past, Frank DeLeo told many heartbreaking stories of Michael's influence on dying children. For instance, a small child suffering from a brain tumor and spinal cancer was brought to Michael on a stretcher one night after a show. When the boy reached up to Michael, he grabbed his hand and held it tight. The child smiled. Frank turned away and broke into tears. He's not afraid to look into the worst of the suffering and find the smallest part that's positive and beautiful, Frank said. While working on We Are the World, Lionel Richie went to the Havenhurst house every night for a week where he and Michael sequestered themselves in Michael's room and worked on the lyrics and the melody. They knew that they wanted some sort of anthem that was easy to sing and memorable. The lyrics and the melody were both finished on the 21st of January, just one night before the recording session, which I should say is just one night before the American Music Awards. So while Michael and Lionel were composing, Ken went about the business of lining up the all-star cast, which includes Bruce Springsteen, Tina Turner, Bette Midler, Billy Joel, Ray Charles, Diana Ross, Dionne Warwick, the Pointer Sisters, Stevie Wonder, Cindy Lauper, Willie Nelson, Smokey Robinson, so many others, 46 plus. All in all, and another 50 artists had to be turned down to keep the project from becoming too unwieldy. And just so you know, the Jacksons that showed up that night were Latoya, Marlon, Jackie, Randy, and Tito. There are two you left off the list that uh, I think both TJ and I would take offense to you leaving off. You know what? Just wait, okay? (laughs) Okay, all right. I'm pretty sure at some point I just list off everybody. Fair enough. All right. So the night of, Diana Ross was overjoyed and actually started asking other stars for their autographs, which I think is awesome. Kenny Loggins observed that he had never before felt that strong sense of community. The musical tracks had been recorded earlier that day, so it was just a matter of fine-tuning the lyrics. Michael taught the artists the melody and the lyrics. Most of them had already been sent demo tapes of the song. On that track, Michael performed the entire song and just worked with them on vocal arrangements. As integral as Michael had become to the project, he was actually very much separated from it. Whereas everyone else was present in filming with these six cameras as they performed We Are the World, Michael's solo was taped later privately and spliced into the final version. And he never took off his sunglasses. One very cute rumor was going around that he wasn't going to be recording with the rest of the artist because he felt so awestruck by his fellow celebrities. A more cynical view of that was that Michael saw himself as more important and different than everybody else. So he set up those barriers. So, you know, two sides of the same slice of bread. Was he so in awe of his fellow artists that he didn't feel like he needed to be there or was worth, you know, was was as good enough to be with those people or 
was he a jerk and hid himself away because he saw himself as better than everybody else. So cynical or optimistic, which one are you? Now on the door of the recording studio were special instructions by Quincy Jones. Now the sign on the door for the recording of We Are the World was this, check your egos at the door. With only one chance to record it, Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie convened this marathon recording session of We Are the World at around 10 p.m. the evening of January 28th, 1985, immediately following the conclusion of the American Music Award ceremony that was held a couple miles away. Here's, here's where we just talk about some of the people that were in it, okay? 45 stars actually sing on We Are the World. Cindy Lauper and Huey Lewis are big ones. Country stars like Kenny Rogers and Willie Nelson, pop icons like Smokey Robinson, Tina Turner, and Paul Simon, and musical giants like Stevie Wonder, Ray Charles, and Bob Dylan. Also in the, the studio that night were half of the Jacksons, one Irishman, which Bob Geldof, the co-organizer, and one party-crashing Canadian who was Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> well, is there more to a story about how he actually got into that lineup? Yes, there is, and I will talk about it. Hooray. So egos fully in checked, the group laid down the course and the solos before the sun rose on the 29th. So let's do a little bit of breakdown of the video and everybody who was there. At minute or at second 26, Lionel Richie, co-writer of We Are the World with Michael Jackson, kicks things off. He assigned himself the opening vocal so he could be done and get it out of the way. Richie was on top of the world in 1985, and he was coming off of the multi-platinum Can't Slow Down and the top hits with Say You, Say Me. Earlier in the evening, Richie had also hosted the American Music Awards, where Prince's Purple Rain beat out Michael Jackson's Thriller in the category of Favorite Rock Pop Album. We Are the World session was scheduled the same night because... So many stars would be in Los Angeles for the show anyway. So that's, they kind of like scooped up this opportunity. Uh, then Stevie Wonder steps up, to, steps up to the microphone to harmonize with Richie. During rehearsal, Wonder flubbed a note and Richie started making fun of him. Stevie messed up. Is that legal? They decided to blame it on his alter ego. And that's Yvette's Reds now, <laughs> which I guess is Stevie Wonder backwards. No longer the unstoppable commercial powerhouse that he was, he was still a force on the charts. Part-time Lover would hit number one later that year. Wonder was originally supposed to be Richie's co-writer, but Quincy knew that Wonder was busy making an album in Circle Square, so he suggested Michael instead. According to Richie, during a break from the recording where Ray Charles asked where the bathroom was, Wonder says, I'll show you where it is, Ray. Follow me. Wonder took Charles by the hand and led him to the hall to the appropriate door while the other stars watched gobsmacked at the fact that that was literally the blind leading the blinds. <laughs> hey wow. Oh, no. Then you have Paul Simon who took over. Then you had Kenny Rogers who's wearing a USA for Africa sweatshirt like he is a particularly big fan of the group. James Ingram then showed up for the session in a shiny silver tracksuit as if he came directly from a workout on the space shuttle. Ingram had a number one single, Baby Come to Me, two years prior. But just as importantly, he was actually well-connected to both Jackson and Jones, having co-written the hit single, PYT, with Jones for Michael Jackson's Thriller. Now, then you have the hair show up. That hair was attached to Tina Turner. And if you guys know, Tina Turner's hair in the 80s was just as much of a part of Tina Turner's act as Tina Turner was. It arrived at shows before she did. Yes, she has got- uh, Well, as they, as they say in, uh, in country music, LD, the higher the hair, the closer to Jesus. Just see Dolly Parton. Seriously. So Tina was massive in the 80s. What's love got to do with it is, such a, a good, good song. In 1985, she was still hitting singles off of her massive comeback album, Private Dancer. With her work done after a long night, she shouted in celebration, Fishburger! Don't know why. I just thought that was funny, so I kept it in there. Turner harmonizes with Billy Joel, who was, I guess, in a lull between hits, uh, which was Innocent Man and The Bridge, during one run through and you'll appreciate this will the thrill during a run through joel took a moment to walk over to a nearby piano and play the song himself confirming that it was in the key of e he looked disgusted and said i hate e that's that, that tracks i don't know why but it tracks and, and some 
would argue unfair unfavorably that the bridge was an entire low for him but we'll get to that well i hope not soon because yeah, no. yeah for a number of reasons one love the guy two that's going to be like another michael jackson size opus of and then billy joel went to mcdonald's yeah i you know what we'll we'll get to mcdonald's one day i'm billy sure joel don't leave don't leave the party anytime soon is what we're saying nope yeah. michael jackson appears at about a minute 19 which of course at this time he's the biggest star in the universe and he sings the chorus and it was actually multi-tracked with himself he stacked those vocals at 9 p.m while the other musicians were still arriving at the studio before he started recording he asked jones quincy do you think i should say you and me or you and i at the end they decided that you and me was more soulful jones called jackson smelly Smelly giggled whenever he flubbed a take. Once Jackson got into the groove, he started dancing behind the microphone, moving his body as much as he could without disrupting the recording. If you're wondering how Lionel Richie got hooked up with Michael Jackson, when Michael was a child and he was in the Jackson 5, Richie's Commodores opened up for the Jackson 5 while they were on tour. He was the opening act? That sounds so strange. Yeah, I had to read that a couple times to make sure I wasn't like flipping it, but no. According to this uh, outsourced article, Richie's Commodores actually opened up for the Jacksons 5 when they were on tour. It shows you how big Michael Jackson was. I mean, he's now surpassing Lionel Richie, who had been in the industry, oh, geez, maybe 15 years prior? Yeah. Whew. Now, some of the vocal pairings on We Are The World seem random or considered a little bit more generous when they were designed to contrast stars of different genres, but... Diana Ross's history with Michael Jackson dating all the way back to 1965 when Motown claimed that she had discovered the Jackson 5. She didn't. She presented their debut album anyway, which that was uh, episode one or two where we were talking about that, how she had claimed that she had discovered them. And Michael really didn't like the lie. But (laughs) of course, you know, he and Diana have a long and storied history and Jackson actually wrote muscles for Ross. And of course, with all the plastic surgeries, people started drawing comparisons between he and her. Um, oh, wow. Saying that basically like Michael's doing all this plastic surgery to look like Diana Ross. And of course he denied it. And I, I honestly don't think that he was trying to do that. Like he, we, we get a little bit more into the plastic surgery later on, but like the fact is he was just always unhappy with his nose. And so people saw him like doing something with his face and they're like, oh, now Diana Ross's nose and Michael Jackson's nose are the same. He must be wanting to look like her. I hate this. I hate this so much. Yeah, it's so it's so petty. And yeah, and it, it, it's so much indicative of a deeper issue that, that Michael had, you know, just the he never felt at home. He never felt like he had his place. I think he just felt out of out of his skin. You know, he never felt like he was. Ah, it's it's got to be really difficult. We'll get there. Yeah. We will get there. Now, Michael was actually supposed to be paired with Prince, but Michael didn't like Prince. For charity, he would sing with him, though. However, Prince didn't even show up. At 6 a.m. the next morning, he called the studio to ask if he might come in and lay down a guitar part, but Quincy told him that it was too late. Hmm. So, well, Quincy says so. That's it. Well, it, what's funny is, yeah, Quincy said it was too late. If this is the same day that they're still recording, I believe they still have two hours left to go. So I think he was probably oh, just geez. fed up with them. Like everybody else had been working since, you know, nine, 10 o'clock that night. And it's now six in the morning. Also, wow. Prince, what are you doing at six in the morning? Did you wake up that early or did you not sleep at all? That's my question. <laughs> I'm guessing he didn't sleep. That's just my prediction. Probably not. So uh, in the video at about a minute and 48 seconds, Dionne Warwick also appeared to be in full legend mode by the time of the session. She would hit number one later in the year with a different charity single, which was that was that's what Friends Are For with Elton John, Gladys Knight and Stevie Wonder to raise money for age research. And she was joined by Willie Nelson. Now, I will say in 1985, when this is released, HIV is just becoming a thing that's in the public zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. It's I think at this point, it's still a death sentence. I think they're making the quilt. So like for her to put her voice to that's what friends are for with Elton and Gladys and Stevie was a big deal. It was a risky move, too. It was a risky move because really that was seen as a gay disease. Yeah. And sticking your neck out like that in 85 could have been a killer, but she did it. And for that, she is a bamf. And it became one of her biggest songs of all time. Yeah. And it's still one that I will put on and listen to and enjoy. It's a good song. Oh, for sure. 
So here you go, honey. At two minutes and 14 seconds, Bruce Springsteen sets up to the microphone. Yeah. And he has his eyes closed and he belts out the chorus. Now, here's the thing. Most Springsteen fans don't think of his voice as one of his principal assets. And that yeah. is true. That he is the world. Like, I think I even called to you. I was I was watching the music video. I think I yelled at you. I was like, he sucks. Oh, God. Bruce Springsteen can't sing. I would say the Grammy wins and album sales indicate otherwise. I mean, I think he's a great songwriter. Just remember, he did write Blinded by the Light by Manfred Mann's Earth Band. Yeah. Which the, the Springsteen version is not great. It's not. It's not. But but uh, I guess, ladies and gentlemen, our federally mandated Manfred Mann's Earth Band reference of the podcast has been satisfied. I like how it kind of went into almost like Muppet territory at the end there. I don't know how, but somehow that reminded me of the Muppets. Well, thank you. <laughs> I do what I can. All right. Two minutes, 21 seconds. The camera pans to Kenny Loggins. The next line, when you're down and out and there seems no hope at all, Jackson takes a solo turn, leading the song into the bridge. Richie sits on the floor behind him against a wall, surveying the scene with his sunglasses and jacket. Jackson appears to be the star, most aware that there is a camera crew in the room. It is. It, it does look a little weird if you watch the music video to to see Michael Jackson's parts, because if Lionel didn't have his like head in the back, just like watching Michael, you wouldn't. It, it would look like a regular photo shoot, <laughs> like but with everybody yeah. else, it just looks like they're having a good time. Pretty much. Yeah. Hey, LD, I hate to uh, cut in on your action here as you talk about uh, Michael Jackson and We Are the World, but we need to take a quick break for our sponsors. All right. And we're back. All right. Let's talk about We Are the World. So Huey Lewis takes the next line and Cindy Lauper splatters her vocal cords all over the song. Her line is probably one of my favorites because she does like the yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, she actually got permission from Jones first, privately asking him, is it all right if I improvise? And delighted, Jones told her, absolutely, this is not the right of spring. <laughs> so she actually does take a little bit of a vocal liberty. Yes. She takes takes a little bit of vocal liberty on the song. And honestly, it's probably one of my favorite parts of the entire song. So yeah, it is stand out. Then the chorus sings and the solo lines were done just as a heads up. The solo lines were actually done between 4 a.m. and 5 a.m. But the chorus took much longer, from about 10.30 p.m. to about 3 a.m. The reason why the entire group needed to be recorded first was so that the stars just didn't check out after hitting their line. After that was done, Quincy kicked off the recording by telling everybody, okay, let's start chopping wood. In his autobiography, Q says that each star had a spot marked on the floor where they'd be standing during the chorus. We didn't want to encourage decision-making during the session, any decision, where they would stand, what they would sing, when they would sing it. We had to think it through and spell it all out. Over the years, I've learned the hard way that once a group of this size and stature gets involved in making decisions, you're in trouble. <laughs> this is one of my favorite things. Sure enough, there was an epic argument after 1 a.m., Centered on some nonsensical words that Jackson had finished with the chorus of Shamlum Shamlanga. Bob Geldof, the man behind Band-Aid's Do They Know It's Christmas the year before, and Live Aid that exact same year, had begun the evening by telling the throng about the brutal realities of famine in Ethiopia. You see bodies lying side by side with the live ones. Objected that if they sang Shalu Shalinga, they would sound like they were mocking the Africans. Jones had the cameras turned off while the stars discussed the issue. Stevie Wonder left to call a friend in Nigeria to get the appropriate Swahili phrase. And that's when Wonder came back reporting that the correct lyrics would be Willy Mongo Goo. I am probably screwing that up and I'm so sorry. Joan said that's when the shit hit the fan. Ray Charles shouted out, say what? Willy what? Willy Mongo my ass. It is three o'clock in the goddamn morning. Swahili shit. I can't even sing in English no more. At this point, Wailing Jennings took off, completely unwilling to sing in Swahili. So Wailing Jennings was just like, I'm out. The, well, the, the, apparently the quote from Wailing was, and I think this was a, a, a verbatim quote, ain't no old boy from Texas ever sung in Swahili, Hoss. Again, on brand for Wailing. Which is like the most Wailing thing in the history of Wailing things. Very accurate. 
um, outside of outside of you know snorting a thousand dollars worth of coke a day i can't wait for that series yeah. it's going to be so bonkers he has lines and once they are crossed he's gone that's it oh yeah Gildhoff observed that ethiopians don't actually speak swahili a point underscored by Lopper, who said that, that was like singing to the English and German. So huh. that, that whole, that whole, <laughs> I just love the, I can't even sing in English right now. I just love the fact that this was up for debate. So Stevie Wonder just pops on the phone and grabs somebody halfway across the world to translate. Just, oh, like, I'll call, I'll call my buddy. Yeah. He's like, excuse me, let me go call Nigeria really quick. And yeah. I'm going to get this sorted out. Hang on. B- BRB. Yeah. <laughs> Ain't no old boy from Texas ever sung in Swahili, Hulse. Yeah, and uh, and at that point, uh-huh. he was just like, I'm out, bye. He's gone. He just straight up left. Yeah, and then Geldof observed that Ethiopians don't actually speak Swahili, a point which was underscored later by Lopper, who said that that was like trying to sing to the English in German. Lopper, Simon, and Al Jiro started lobbying for a meaningful phrase. And Giroux came up with One World, Our World, which got modified to One World, Our Children. Tina Turner, so tired that she had her eyes closed, said to herself, I like Shalom better, but who cares what it means? I think at this point, everyone is getting a little punchy. Yeah, I mean, we've recorded some episodes on here where we were all punchy. And I think you can tell the quality goes down a little bit, you know, at at the 3 a.m. mark. We're not going to say... The Joe Diffie episode, but uh, yeah, one of them. Yep. That's happened. It's really a bell curve. You hit your peak and then 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., and it's all off the rails from there. Um, at three minutes and 36 seconds, hello, John Oates and LaToya Jackson. Yes, John <laughs> Oates. Tonight. So, hey, you ever hear the, uh, the jokes the comedian told one time that uh, Andrew Ridgely from Wham and John Oates from Paul and Oates should start their own? Uh, their own group and call it yeah right <laughs> nice well i love that who were the two women that did the garfunkel and oats yes they I were i forget their names oh they were so funny i still love that calling oats is a thing uh, that's the it's- only thing that keeps me hanging on to the human race like there's hope because yep. of calling oats yep yep somebody like calling oats and john oliver are the reasons why i still believe in humanity <laughs> so After the soloist finished around 5 a.m., it was time to record a few superstars singing the chorus. Where's Bob Dylan, Jones asked. Let's get Bobby in here. Also, the fact that Jones is powerful enough that he can call Bob Dylan Bobby. Bob Dylan, grizzled and clad in a leather jacket, wasn't much of a commercial force by 1985. His album that year, the forgettable Empire Burlesque, but he remained an icon. The problem was that Dylan was tentative and barely audible. He is not a melodic guy. (laughs) And he was, he had to stay onto a very specific melody, John Oates noted. Half singing, half talking. Jones instructed Dylan. Excuse me, excuse me, Quincy. Have you heard Bob sing before? Like, this is a surprising turn of event. Wait, uh, that, that Bob melody? doesn't seem like he uh, holds the melody very well. Yeah, no shit. He made a career of that. Yeah, he instructed Dylan. Your thing is modulating. Stevie, Dylan asked, can you play it one more time? Dylan then moved over to the piano where Wonder coached the voice of a generation through his performance. Initially, Wonder was doing a better impression of Dylan than the man himself, but eventually Dylan's mumbling vocals blossomed into a distinctive wheeze. Distinctive wheeze. That's my new band name. Write it down. Write it down. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage. Distinctive wheeze. At the Stone Pony. Yeah, Yeah, I I got this part of the article from a one of the websites. I will I will give it credit in the show notes, but I did I did steal like a little bit of a timeline from one of the websites and they called it actually a distinctive adnodial wheeze. I would pay to see just the footage of kind of the sidebars taking place at the piano because you have Billy Joel's key of E meltdown. You've got Stevie Wonder coaching Bob Dylan. I mean, this sounds like where the gold mine is. I think there's actually some behind the scenes footage because there was six oh. cameras constantly rolling. So like, I'm sure it exists somewhere. I heard this wonderful story that um, Huey Lewis was talking to Willie Nelson during a break or something while they were eating or whatever they were doing. And they were talking about golf. Apparently both were, were, you know, 
uh, enjoyed playing golf. Huey is and an Bob, avid golfer, no? Yeah, uh, yeah, I think so. Will, Willie is a, a big time golfer. I, you know, he used to play with like Daryl Royal and people like that. But um, he, uh, but they're talking about golf, and Dylan wanders up and says, "Like, hey, what are you guys talking about?" And uh, or however Dylan would say it. Um, and they're like, "Oh, we're we're talking about golf." And Dylan looked down and said, "Golf? That's outrageous." And they're like. <laughs> okay <laughs> go on yeah yeah no they're just that, that was it that was it that the, the fact that huey lewis and willie nelson were standing in a studio discussing golf was just outrageous to bob dylan i yeah i i i can't i can't there's it's like they put it together as a mad lib we keep talking about this but this is like how many stars can you get and the pairings was really funny because i think I want to say at some point, Diana Ross jumped into Bob Dylan's lap. It can't be a fever dream. I don't drink beer. Strange things happen at 3 a.m., I'm guessing. So, yeah. So, it's not off the board. So, so, you know, Dylan gets through his thing and he, he edges him closer to the microphone and he said, that's the only time that we used the whole octave. And uh, then Jones gave him a big hug and told him that it was perfect. Dylan's face lit up with a big smile and said, if you say so. Then we get Anita Pointer of the Pointer Sisters and then Harry Belafonte and then Dan Aykroyd. Now, one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> Hang on, I'll come around I'll, to it. Although, I mean, Dan has had a hand in a couple of hits. Uh, yeah. Actually... It's not yeah. just a handful of hits. He did have a number one album, Briefcase Full of Blues with the Blues Brothers in 1978. Well, that's what I was talking about. You know, they, yes. they had a couple of what, Rubber Biscuit and a couple of other Soul Man. I love Rubber Biscuit. That's it's such a weird but awesome song. What do you want for nothing? <laughs> the best part is Dan Aykroyd just looks like again he's trying to hide in the back that's the well, best he's, part he's got a jacket and i'm pretty sure it's a members only jacket a tie and big glasses and he kind of looked like a like an accountant or you know the the guy who shows up at boot camp and you know that he's going to be the first one that's killed in a war movie i think my comment when we were watching the video i was like oh is that the guy who like owns the studio and you're like no that's dan Aykroyd. Ah. So here's here's a fun little story about fun story how he ended up in USA for Africa totally by accident. He told a New Hampshire magazine in 2010, my father and I were interviewing business managers in LA and we walked into this office of a talent manager, which was presumably Ken Cragen, and didn't realize that they were in the wrong place. He was looking for a manager, not a talent manager, and he manages himself all the time. That's, that's kind of what he said. He didn't need that because, you know, he's already like, he's already got a, a, a good career. So, you know, I think managing the money was the more important. And he said, well, hey, as long as you're here, do you want to come in and join this We Are the World thing? He thought, how do I fit in here? And he thought, okay, well, I did sell a few million records with the Blues Brothers and my other persona, I am a musician. So he showed up and was a part of it. So totally by accident, he was looking for a manager. Lines got crossed on what kind of manager this was. And he ended up singing, We Are the World. So the next icon that pops up is Ray Charles. Not just the godfather of American rhythm and blues, but that's one of Quincy Jones's old friend and collaborators dating back to Seattle jazz in 1947. Yeah. Wow. So there's a duet between Stevie Wonder and Bruce Springsteen. That wasn't planned at all. After Dylan finished his section, Jones summoned Springsteen to the microphone and Jones remembered, God must have tapped me on the shoulder to save the record by suggesting that I ask Bruce Springsteen, for no logical reason at all, to supply solo answers to the choir melody on the title chorus because all the textures and intensities of his truly unique voice, especially in this register. I'm sorry. I, I, I understand Bruce Springsteen is, is an incredible talent when it comes to writing. I just don't like his voice and please don't at me. Please don't send me hate mail. I'm a sensitive soul, but uh, I, I can respect the man for having good songwriter talent. <laughs> well, uh, and as the resident Springsteen fan, I will, I will support you LD and just say that uh, that recent comment from Quincy sounds like when a parent asks a teacher 
to write a recommendation about their student who's really not doing all that well. That's the tone I got from that. His unique vocal quality. He it's tries. Like, uh, he, he does. And, and, and in all fairness to the boss, he is very, he's very much an activist, as many of you know. So yes. I'm sure this was more than anything, a passion project for him. Yeah. So by 8 a.m., everybody had called it a night. Michael was exhausted. Jeffrey Osborne reported that he didn't say much, maybe something about being very happy, but he could tell that he was delighted. I did expect to see more ego, Paul Simon reported, you know, the glove, the gloved one meets the boss and things like that, but it didn't happen. I just don't want this night to end, Diana Ross said as she hugged Tina Turner. Now, when he woke up, Jones listened to the tapes and realized that he didn't have enough material. The energy I needed to conclude had dissipated earlier than I had anticipated. The power of the choir had peaked after two choruses and one key change. Then he realized that he could use Springsteen's vocals and give them some extra kick by replacing the chorus with Stevie Wonder. He also summoned Wonder back to the studio. He's wearing a multicolored patchwork shirt in this section, not the blue and black sweater that he was sporting on the night of January 28th. He had him record the two choruses and patched it all together with the vocal intensity of two, these two master artists. Their call and response earned almost a full minute of the single's runtime. Now, the next thing in the video, you see Bette Midler, who did not get a single uh, line in the song, but she has got a bitchin' haircut, which is like this super new wave haircut, spiky red, it was crazy. Then Jeffrey Osborne, then Lindsey Buckingham. And then you see Quincy waving his arms as if he's trying to hail a cab. And the chorus keeps singing and filling out the choir. Uh, you see Ruth and June of the Pointer Sisters Marlon, Randy, Tito, and Jackie of the Jackson family, but not Jermaine, and the members of the news not named Huey Lewis. And if not for Prince's absence, Huey Lewis would have spent the evening hanging out with his bandmates. Uh, as the seven-minute-plus single heads for its final fade-out, Lionel Richie gives the camera a big thumbs up. Now, the aftermath. We Are the World went on sale five and a half weeks later on Thursday, March the 7th. An initial shipment of 800,000 copies went out. Over that first weekend, the single sold out. The song ultimately spent four weeks at number one, and it was knocked off by someone who we're going to talk about a little bit more later on in this series, but it was kicked off the charts by Crazy For You by Madonna, who is arguably one of the biggest artists who wasn't at the We Are the World sessions aside from Prince. Right. The single would go on to, to sell over 8 million copies in the U.S. Some claim as many as 20 million copies worldwide, but of course we didn't have SoundScan back then, so it's sort of just like a guesstimation. While the accompanying album, which does include tracks that Prince had promised for the Tears in Your Eyes, plus the Canadian all-star sing-along from Northern Lights, Tears Are Not Enough, but not heavy metal famine benefit group called Here in Aid. What is Here in Aid? You can stick on Hearing Hear Aid. Yeah. Hearing, yeah, Hearing Aid was uh, a heavy metal um, uh, a heavy metal single or a collection of heavy metal artists that did some kind of similar thing to We Are the World where like the money was going to some cause. I don't even remember what it was. I don't think Hearing Aids. Yeah, um, but, no, but, uh, it looked like it, a famine. It, it, famine. Yeah, but that, it was it was a bunch of heavy metal artists that did some kind of charity single or album. So yeah, the the heavy metal famine benefit group called Hearing Aid was not on We Are the World. So, but uh, USA for Africa raised more than seventy five million dollars for famine relief. We Are the World still earns money today. Although distributing food in Ethiopia was a logistical and political nightmare, some of the money raised was squandered. The song did a lot of good in the world. Stones might not have been turned to bread, but the music did turn into rescuing lives. As Springsteen said about that night, anytime somebody asks you to take one night of your time to stop people from starving to death, it's pretty hard. You can't say no. Now, that's basically the end of this episode, but I would like to take a couple minutes just to call out a couple people. Okay. Okay. Number one, Kim Carnes. Hi, how you doing? Uh, I actually reached out to Kim Carnes on Instagram and uh, I think someone is actually attempting to pass themselves off as Kim Carnes. So uh, she's the one that sings Betty Davis Eyes. She does appear in... Uh, the USA for Africa song, We Are the World. So I reached out to her because uh, mama got some big old brass balls when it came to this. And 
unfortunately, I think somebody is pretending to be Kim Carnes because I said, hey, can I take 15 minutes of your time to do a Zoom call to talk about this project? And the person that was uh, pretending to be her was like, yeah, it'll cost you money though. So just playing along, I was like, "Mm, okay, how much? And they said 800 euro. And I thought, F you. Well, first they quoted euro, which was a bit of a red flag. Because Kim is American. Right. And another thing that's over right. and, or, and the only the only bigger tip I would have been if they wanted you to like pay in bitcoins or something. Wouldn't have shocked me, but uh, yeah, they uh, and I was like, I'm sorry, we're a very small podcast, we can't afford that. And then they wrote me back, well, how much can you afford? And I, my thought was, I'm asking you to take 15 minutes of your time on a Zoom call to talk about a charitable event, and you want. Over nine hundred dollars in American money? Mm, no, thanks. Hard yeah, that, sounds, that sounds sketchy. Yeah. So then, uh, let's see who else. Because I I sent several messages to several people. So let's just uh, let's just see. Hang on. But while, while you're looking that up, I will say that I just don't want to glaze over here in aid for a moment because it has great talents like TJ Jeff Tate was part of that lineup. Absolutely. As was Rob Halford. But perhaps my favorite is Don Ass Dockin. Don Dawkin, absolutely, yep. and um, Ronnie James Dio. Yeah, Ronnie James Dio was on that. Um, I think Vivian I think Campbell, guy Blue, yeah. the guy from Blue Oyster Cult. I want to say, wasn't like Ted Nugent, and I, I want to say, like I, I feel like the lineup well, of that you know was what? pretty expensive. Yeah, I've pulled it up. Uh, the people who sang lead vocals included uh, Eric Bloom of mm-hmm. uh, Blue Oyster Cult, Dio, Dawkin. Uh, Kevin DeBro from Quiet Riot, Rob Halford, oh, wow. uh, Dave Minichetti from Wine T, okay, Paul Shortino from Rough Cut, and then Jeff Tate, the great Jeff Tate, formerly of Queensryche. And then, but then, like backing vocals, it is a list. It's fifty people long. Yeah, it just keeps going to everybody you can possibly just, think of. So just pick anybody who participated in hard rock or heavy metal at that point. They probably had something to do with it. Okay, so the other thing was I emailed Kenny Loggins people and they seemed to be super on board and then they ghosted me and I'm like, come on, guys. So then I tweeted at Quincy Jones just to see what I could do. And then I uh, tweeted at Huey Lewis and I tweeted Huey Lewis's documentarian and Nobody wanted to talk about this, so uh, I'm a and little. I will, I will say, I will say, in Huey's defense, you know, he has a very difficult time hearing now, and I don't. It, it's I've seen a few interviews with him, but it's it's. I don't think he can do. He does many at this point. Yeah, well, I know that he's got a documentary coming out. I'm friends with the documentarian. His name's Kirk Kenny, and he is an incredible documentarian. I cannot wait to see this. Uh, um, oh, for sure. And, so, uh, and, you know, when, with Loggins, you know, you start asking him to talk about stuff in the 80s, but you may just be entering the danger zone. Oh, God, I'm so sorry, guys. <laughs> but, but, guys, guys, I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm okay. <laughs> Ain't nobody worry about me. Don't you dare besmirch Footloose, because if you do, I will hurt you. I wouldn't dare. You'll get that spray bottle in here, and that did not go well last time. You're right. I was, I was cold. I was wet. It was, uh, it was very, very unfortunate. <laughs> all right well do you guys have any wrap-up thoughts about we are the world it, i just remember at the time it was just it was a huge deal that that many big stars got together and and, and you know did one song and it was a mammoth hit and it, it, it that was at a time when something like that still seemed kind of special and now it kind of wouldn't because you know, they actually did a we are the world to raise money for 2010 <laughs> Haiti. For who? Haiti. For Haiti. Thank you. Yes, mm. Haiti. I think that was led by Wyclef, if I remember right. And um, they had like Justin Bieber in it, so it was more and people like that, right? And it just was. It just not the same. That things like the, the the special nature of things back then, when they that didn't happen much, was different than it is now. I just remember it being a huge, huge deal, and the song was an omnipresent force that you could not escape. <laughs> Oh, everywhere you that went was the other thing. i actually reached out to dan Aykroyd's people to try to book him for the show as well so and then i tried to get a hold of lionel richie's people 
because you guys know I work on American Idol, but of course I'm pre-production and he is production. So he is talent. So getting to him is a little bit hard, especially since they're, you know, doing Idol right now. You know, so, right. You know, maybe you should just are... try dropping my name next time. Um, yeah, I'll get yeah. right on that. Yeah, I... just drop my name. That'll that'll <laughs> make a huge difference. Well, in the end, for me, my opinion is that this was, it was a great moment where literally what Quincy posted on the door, which was check your ego, kind of worked out. And they, for one night, they had this great community. It didn't matter who was on top of the charts. It didn't matter about who had a hit when. It was people that were recognizable in so many different genres of music. Like you had Kenny Rogers and Waylon Jennings who were country and you had pop and you had R&B and you had rock and you had yacht rock and you had all these different people coming together as one voice and it was something really beautiful and they all agreed that this was a problem and this is what they could do to help fix a problem and so as far as good intentions go i think it was an incredible moment in history that that they have tried to replicate again and it didn't work it was just something that moment that was captured that one night in january that I don't ever think could be duplicated. And I, I think th that We Are the World stands as an anomaly and something that is really beautiful in the end. It didn't matter if Bruce Springsteen can't sing. He was there giving his talent. Oh, come on, guys. Leave the boss alone. <laughs> he, he said in the end. All right. Well, I'm going to give our socials out now. <laughs> Good a time as any. We'll All go right. on a high note. So if you guys like what we're doing and think, man, I want to give them money, you can do that over at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. Uh, as soon as we move, though, we are going to completely restructure our Patreon to give you guys more and to give you guys, you know, uh, something better than just like a shout out to getting picked the episodes and stuff like that. So uh, we're going to sit down with all three of us and discuss how to make that Patreon better. So hold tight. It is coming. You can check out our Twitter at Rock and Roll LT. Our Instagram is Rock and Roll Heaven. Our Facebook is Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. We actually have a lot of fun over there, guys. So definitely check our Facebook out. We post a lot on that. Uh, I'm, and that's, that's, again, Facebook Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. Still not saying our website. You can email us to at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com. And you guys should check out our TikTok so you can see my weird big head. And that is at Rock and Roll Heaven Pod. And please make sure to check out all the other awesome Pantheon podcasts at pantheonpodcast.com. So I'm going to close out this episode after we say goodbye to everybody. Um, so TJ, do you have anything you'd like to say to the audience? Bye, everybody. All right, Mr. Will the Thrill. Well, just to bring up the TikTok, we had sort of a, a live on-scene one most recently, which was very interesting, and yes. you can check that out there. And to the rest, I say, be good to each other, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you on the next one. All right. So uh, to close out this episode, I'm going to play the most logical song to end the episode on. And Uncle Arthur, the you're going to play, wait, book. you're going to play the logical song? <laughs> oh, nice. Yes, super Tramp, Yes. <laughs> All right, guys. So here is USA for Africa. Hey, wait, wait, wait. I got, hey, wait, I just thought about something. What? USA for Africa. It went to benefit, um, uh, you know, starving people in Africa, right? Right. Hey, you know who was from Africa? Who? Manfred Mann of Manfred Mann's Earth Band. Hey! We already, we already did it. We got a two for yeah, them. Got, yeah, I got disconnected for a while. I missed that part. <laughs> Just covering your bases, making sure. Okay. Well, do you, do you want to go ahead and do it too? Do the honors, yeah. You want to do the honors again? But, you, but make sure that this is the second Manfred Man. Yeah, all right. Oh, no. Ladies, ladies and gentlemen, our federally mandated Manfred Man's Earth Man reference to the podcast has now been satisfied twice. We hit it two times. Mm. I could tell that you need to work on your breasts. You just need to need more support at the bottom. We have more support at the bottom. All right. Here, guys, here's USA for Africa with We Are the World. Goodbye. We will see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>
Done and 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 